Amen. Good morning. <laughs> Welcome to Grace. If you guys will stand up, we're going to sing out together. Yeah. That's what I like to hear. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's sing together. A joyful song, let us praise the King, let us praise the King of glory.
singing out together.
Jesus, we thank you that uh, you are one great love. We thank you for the things that you have done for us. Jesus, the things that we so often maybe forget. We thank you for the love that you showed to us by laying on the cross and dying for us. Thank you for your great sacrifice. Jesus, we just pray that you'll uh, be right here this morning for us. That you'll be with everything that is said and done, that it will be pleasing to you. Thank you so much for shedding your blood for me for the forgiveness you give me through your blood. In Jesus' name we pray.
God, we just thank you so much for the chance to sing your praise. God, we thank you for your promises to us. God, and that you have the power to fulfill them, to keep them. God, we thank you for rescuing us from darkness. God, help us to look at your truth now, God. We pray that you will help us to live as children of light. God, help that, we pray that the truth will change us, God. Help us to take it to a world that is desperately in need of it. It's your name I pray. Amen. You'll stay standing. I'm going to take a minute. Why don't you greet someone next to you? Look for someone new that you haven't met before. Take a minute to say hello and introduce yourself. Uh, I'd like to welcome you again to Grace. And if you are new here, we've been studying Hebrews together. So if you have a Bible, you can open it up to Hebrews. And uh, if you don't have one, we've, we've conveniently placed some under the chairs in front of you. You could grab one of those. And we're in page 1004. In those Bibles, I think we're getting a little thin out there. We're going to order some more, um, because if you don't have a Bible at home, we encourage you to take one of those with you. Uh, But we're in page 1004 in those black Bibles, Hebrews 7, 11 through 28. We've been looking in the book of Hebrews at how Jesus is this better Savior, right? That that there are these saviors, that there are these truths, that there are these good things uh, in the Old Testament that the Jewish people were very proud of, their heritage. And what the author is trying to communicate to these Jewish Christians in this book is that all of those things are good and right and true, but they're pointing to Jesus, who is the completion of them. He's what we've been waiting for, and so don't fall away from Jesus and fall back to these things that came before Jesus, but look to Jesus ultimately as that better Savior, as the one that's going to completely save. Uh, This morning it's called A Better System. I don't know if you're like me. I tend to be a problem solver. I tend to think... Wow, if I can just tweak the system, if I can just change this a little bit or change that a little bit, then everything would be okay. If I would just find the right system. What the author is saying here is that that system is Jesus. And that we can't fall back to our old religious ways. We can't fall back to our old habits or systems that have worked for us before. We can't design a better system ourselves. But we have to look to Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment. He is the better system, better than any system that God had instituted in the past. Because all of those previous systems... God was instituting for the point of of pointing us, of taking us to Jesus. So we're going to read uh, verses 11 through 28 in Hebrews 7. I have a mint. I have to chew that up, so hold on a second. Okay. Y'all greeted each other too fast. You threw off all my timing, so. That's good, though. I mean, I like that you're on the ball. That's good. All right. Hebrews 7, 11 through 28. It says, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? He was the first priest under the old system. For when there's a change in the priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one's ever served at the altar... For it's evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. We talked about that last week, right? Judah was the tribe of kings. Levi was the tribe of priests. So Jesus is from this other tribe. He says, For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it's evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. So all this starts to become more evident when this new priest comes. When we actually look at Jesus, the new priest, 
the, the, the weakness of the old system becomes more evident. He says, Who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life? So it's this incredible, indestructible life of Jesus that stands in contrast to everything that's gone before. Verse 17 says, For it is witnessed of him you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. This better hope is Jesus. That's how we get to God, not any other system that God has given before, not any other system that we may make up on our own, but through Jesus. He is the better system by which we draw near to God. Verse 20 says, And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You're a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Verse 26, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We trust that it is true, and Lord, we ask that you would change us with it, that you would transform us. Father, there's, there's some complicated logic here, some argumentation going on in the text, and we pray that you would help us to, to understand it clearly and understand the, the beautiful, better system that is your Son, Jesus. And I pray this in his name. Amen. Well, as I was thinking of new systems, I thought of this quote. Uh, there's a quote you may have heard before. Uh, build a better mousetrap, and the world will beat a path to your door. Have you ever heard that phrase before? No. All right. First service, neither. So this is the worst illustration I've ever come up with. <laughs> Nobody's heard of it in the first service. Look it up. It's in Wikipedia. Okay, three of you. All right. Thank you. All right. Well, I was, I was going to show you. This is the standard mousetrap here. It was supposed to be set so I could real dramatically show you how they work. Because the normal... I oh, know. I need all my digits. The normal mousetrap is is really designed to kill mice, right? Just the slightest uh, movement. Ugh! Yeah, here we go. And, and the metal arm comes down to, to crush the poor little mouse, right? And uh, so there's this idea that we should build a better mousetrap. Well, I don't know if you knew this, but in my former life, I was actually an inventor myself. And uh, when I was five years old, I invented a better mousetrap. I was four, four or five years old, and what I did was I took cheese, because mice like cheese, right? And I'd seen plenty of cartoons about this. And, and what I did was I, I dribbled cheese crumbs and bits all throughout our house to make some trails leading from all different directions. Because um, I didn't really know where the mouse's door was. You know, in the cartoons, they always had a little door cut out on the side of the wall. <laughs> I wasn't able to locate that door. So I just used all the hallways in the house and, and made these little trail of cheese crumbs back towards my room, the hallway right outside my room, because I wanted 
not to kill the poor mice, but I wanted to have some friends to play with, right? Like, yeah, oh, thank you for that. Yeah, I was, I was a troubled child, really, but I wanted some, I wanted some, some playmates, right? Some, some pets. So I was trying to build a better mousetrap that would draw them in. I had uh, this trail of cheese crumbs, and then I had this, like, car race track, because I figured, you know, mice are dumb, they just get on the track, and then they'd run around, and then I had this this uh, basket on its side next to some tin cans, and I had that set up, so then the mouse would go into the basket and run on it like a little wheel, and then it would roll into the tin cans, and that would wake me up, and then I'd know to come out, and there would be my new friend, the little, the little mouse, right? And, and for some reason, uh, my dad didn't like my beautiful plan. I, I can't understand why. He, he, he thought my, my mouse trap was not going to bring life and glory and all these wonderful things that I thought it was going to bring, but he thought it was just going to attract pests to our house. He, he just thought it was going to increase the cockroach population and, and maybe actually the mouse population and maybe rat and whatever else population at this house. He thought it would bring in pests, it would bring in bad things, but it wouldn't really uh, bring me the fun and joy that I was looking for. Now looking back, I think maybe he was right. I'd, I'd like to test it out again and see if it actually worked. I never really got a chance to test out the prototype. Um, but I think what this shows us is that in our own creativity, um, we will work and we will strive to create a system, create something, a better mousetrap, whatever it may be, that, that will bring us what we want, right? The joy that we're looking for, that emptiness that we struggle with, whether it be health or better relationships or the right amount of money, whatever it is that you think is the answer you're looking for in life, you're going to tend to spend your energy and your time and your talents building and working and creating some system to fill that void, to fill what is missing and create a system that, that brings you life. And in this passage in Hebrews 7, what we're saying, what we're seeing is that these Christians, because life was difficult, were thinking, well, maybe this system is not the right system. Maybe this Jesus system is not the right thing. And we were right about the Bible. We were right about the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Let's turn back to the old covenant. Let's turn back to the old system. But let's slide away from Jesus because he's not delivering, right? Our life isn't instantly cured. I'm not healthy. I don't have fixed relationships. Everything's not just perfect when I came to Jesus. So maybe I'll slide back. And that's what we've seen again and again in, in Hebrews is that, that they were faced with the same difficulties we're faced with. Most of us are not Jews, so we're not thinking of sliding back to Old Covenant Judaism. We're thinking of sliding back to the bottle or sliding back to bad relationships or sliding back to uh, just money being the answer in our life. But whatever it is, when we're in this wilderness, we, we think some other system will do it. But the author is telling us again and again that Jesus is the system. He's the one that's going to do it. He's the one that can bring us to God. He's the one that can reconcile and give us that life that we're looking for. And to hope in him and not to hope in these other things. Not to try to create some new system. Not to try to create some new model, but to trust in Jesus as the answer. The first thing that he has to do is he has to convince them that there's something wrong with their old system. I'm going to trust that in your own lives, you've, you've seen that your system, whatever that may be, has failed you at some points. Here he has to show them that that old covenant system was weak and couldn't actually give them life. He began that argument last week. We saw last week where he was talking about how this, this new covenant in Jesus actually has roots back before the old covenant. It has roots back in Abraham and Melchizedek and what, was God, and what God was doing before Moses ever showed up and gave the law. These, these roots were there. This 
promise, this plan of Jesus was already, already had its roots back then. Here he's going to continue this argument and say, you know what, this new system is a, or this old system is a weak system. Uh, it's an incomplete system. If you read verse 11, he says, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? He's saying perfection couldn't come through the old system. He's saying if perfection had been able to come through the old system, we'd still be in the old system. But the fact that the old system was not able to perfect anyone was not able to complete us, to make us whole. Remember, that's what the word perfect means. It means this maturity, coming to the end of something, the way it's supposed to be. And he's saying it, it can't get us there. The old system can't get us there, and it was never meant to get us there. It was actually supposed to show us that we can't get there. The whole point of the system was to display God's glory, His, His perfect holiness, all these ceremonial laws that seem so bizarre to us now, so many years culturally removed, all these laws and all these ceremonies were to show that God is absolutely holy. He's absolutely other. So these things we look back and we say, that's strange. That's different. Well, yeah, that's to show that God is different and strange to us because we are not holy and God is holy. All those sacrifices that they were to make were to show their need for sacrifice. So that they were being shown again and again, we're guilty. We're sinners. We need a sacrifice. So all those things showed the need but they didn't bring them to perfection. They didn't get them there. If perfection had been attainable through that priesthood, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise in the order of Melchizedek? He emphasizes this in verse 18. He says, For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So we've got these two systems. We've got this old system that is weak and useless. This is shocking language, and we talked about this a little bit last week. This would have, this would have sounded uh, disrespectful, sacrilegious. You know, some people would have said, how dare you intimate that what Moses gave us, this covenant we had in, in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, all of these books of the Old Testament, key books, bedrock of the Old Testament, how dare you say that that, that wasn't complete and perfect? And the author's argument, similar to Paul's argument in the New Testament, is all of that was good, but its whole point was to prepare you and to push you and to propel you forward to Jesus, to show you your need. It wasn't supposed to get you there. It was supposed to point you to Jesus, and Jesus can get us there. He's the one who enables us to draw near to God. And when you read the Old Testament, you see none of those guys got there by being perfect. None of those people had a relationship with God because they were so great. They had a relationship with God because God was so gracious. And that's the foreshadowing of this Jesus who is to come, who is the God that comes to us. We can't come to him. He comes to us and enables us then to come to God, to draw near to God. I was thinking about an image of something weak and useless, and I thought about my old computer. Here's a, uh, here's a picture of my old computer. It, yeah, it's basically a slow typewriter. A typewriter would be better than the Macintosh 2E, this is a, or 2A, or whatever it was. I don't even remember what it's called now. But the screen was about this big, right? It was like our grandparents' TV screen. And uh, black and white, maybe there's a little color on that one. But it could, can't really do much at all, right? 
I mean, it could hold maybe one MP3 by today's standards of memory, I think. It, it was very small. It was very slow by today's standards. And we would look at an old computer and we would think of this image of something weak and useless. And, and that's what the author is trying to get us to understand about the Old Covenant. It, its purpose wasn't to do what Jesus is doing. Its purpose was to point us to Jesus. And, and so if we're looking to it to complete us, to perfect us, to bring us to God, that, that's not the point. That's not even what the Old Covenant was designed to do. It was to shape us and, and help us to see our need. When we look at God's law, we see how great God is, and we see how weak we are. We see how perfect He is, and we see how imperfect we are. And only Jesus can perfect us. You can't come up to the law and make yourself perfect. You can't use your own strength and, and just gut it out and say, I'm just going to be better no, when you come to the law and when you use the law, the law shows you your brokenness. The law shows you your need for God. I'm thinking an application of this is in today's day, there are many uh, religious groups that will say, yeah, Jesus is fine, but you really need the laws of Moses too. Jesus is fine, but you really need all these Old Testament sacrifices or these Old Testament feasts or these Old Testament things. You need to incorporate those as well. I think the New Testament is very clear that the morality, right, the, the righteous living of the Old Testament is reinforced and continued. But the cultural external sacrifices and systems are not continued because those are all pointers. As I say, my, my phrase is flannel graph, right? They are, they are pictures. They're flannel graph to show us Jesus, to point us to Jesus. And so when Jesus is here, we don't need the flannel graph anymore. Those things are all pointing us to see him. The morality is the same, but the external, the culture, we'll say the culture is different, but the righteousness is the same. Are you, are you tracking with that? Does that make sense? And, and so what happens is many churches confuse those two things, right? And we joke about this. Like, like we could begin to say that we know Jesus and Jesus is the answer and we're the church that knows that. And, and so then we could plant a new church and the new church would say, well, Grace Bible Church had pink carpet. And, and so we have got to have pink carpet, Right? And that sounds ridiculous, right? Because the pink carpet's pretty ugly. And it just came with the building when we bought it. You know, it's a 10-year-old building and it had carpets. So we're like, all right, let's go. But, but we confuse those two things. We confuse culture and the external things with the Jesus that we're following. And those are two different issues, right? Uh, we have Sunday school at 1030. And that's really just a big trick to uh, encourage more of you to go to church at 9 o'clock, right? That's really the only reason we do that. But, but it would be crazy if we started to say, you've got to have Sunday school at 10.30 because that's really the only spiritual way to do it. No, it's just a cultural, external thing we're doing. And you've got to be able to separate those things. And I'm using obvious examples. But as you drill down, many groups will start to say, you've got to do it our way. And if you don't do it our way, you're in big trouble. Whereas the Bible says, no, Jesus is what gets you there, not somebody's way, not somebody's system. But there are Messianic uh, Jewish Christian groups where it's very subtle. Some of them I would agree with completely, right? Because in the New Testament, the New Testament makes it clear that you can be a Greek Christian, you can be a Jewish Christian, you can be a, a Hispanic Christian, you can be an African Christian. You know, you can, you can bring your culture in and practice Christianity in that form. If we go worship with people in Ukraine, they're going to have a different style. If we go worship with people in Africa, they're going to have a different style. If we worship with people even down the block, there's going to be a different style. And those different styles are okay, but those styles don't justify us. Those styles don't bring us 
to God. That's just kind of who we are. We are this kind of people, this is our culture, and we're pursuing Jesus. Jesus is the point. And some sects, some denominations, some groups, like I said, some Messianic Jewish groups will start to say, well, yeah, we agree Jesus is the only way to God, but you're a stupid loser if you don't do it our way. And, and, and that's, a, that's a tricky little line there, right? They can on paper be saying, yeah, we, Jesus is the only way, but we hate everybody that doesn't do it our way. And so what they're saying is on paper they're saying Jesus is the only way, but in their practice they're, they're teaching a completely different lesson. And we have to be very careful about that. I've said before, we have, we have a unique church here. God has, has blessed us with an exciting community where, where people move in and people move out, and we love that. We love you. If you're just here for six months and God takes you somewhere else, we are glad you're here. And we want to love you and, and enjoy you while you're here with us. But part of what comes along with the community where people come in and come out is we have to carefully guard uh, that reality of culture, that our culture is always going to be secondary to our King, Jesus. Does that make sense? He, he is the one that takes us into the presence of God. And, and blue chairs and pink carpet will always be secondary. Th those things really don't matter. Okay? Th those are not the important thing. It's not the style of music. It's not the clothes. It's not the lights. It's not the building. But it's Jesus. And, and that's who we are pursuing. He is, he is the thing that we need. So his logic then takes us to, now there's a changed system. This new system, Jesus, means a change, right? So there's a changed system. In verse 12 he says, for when there's a change in the priesthood, we have a new priesthood now, not this old priesthood, but now the one in Melchizedek, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. Verse 13 says, For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it's evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So here he's reiterating that. He's not, he's not from the priest tribe. He's from the king tribe. But in the order of Melchizedek, it can be a priest and king. As one. Verse 15 says this becomes even more evident when another priest arise, arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. So, this changing thing, this, this switchover of an old system to a new system, a weak system to now a new changed system, a better system, it becomes evident when the new system arrives on the scene, right? He says, when this new priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, verse 16 says, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. The, the, the reality of the new blows away the old. The power of Jesus and who he is in his person just blows everybody away and, and makes it more evident, it says, even more clear, or even more evident in verse 15, when Jesus shows up on the scene, right? This power of his life, Paul says it's of first importance in 1 Corinthians 15. This resurrection, Jesus rising from the dead. If you don't believe he rose from the dead, this is a, a weak and stupid hobby that you have showing up here on Sundays. Okay? But Paul says that it's of first importance, that, that it doesn't matter. None, none of the things that we're doing matter if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. If he didn't conquer sin and death once and for all, then he's not the new system, and he's not the one we should be following. And we, we could have better things to do. We could be throwing Frisbees right now instead of meeting and, and doing this. But because he does have that power, because he has conquered death, we, we gather to worship him, to learn from him, to align our lives underneath him, and to pursue him. Because he is the one that can bring us to God. This power of the indestructible life. Verse 17 says, For it's witnessed of him, you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. 
The old one couldn't get us there. The new one gets us there, and it's Jesus. Through Jesus, we can draw near to God. That doesn't mean we don't go through the wilderness, right? We've seen that in Hebrews. Reread the beginning of these seven chapters. We will still go through the wilderness. Life will still be difficult. Just like the Apostle Paul said, of course I'd rather be dead and in heaven where everything's perfect. But God has left us here in this wilderness for his purposes, to serve him, to pursue him in a broken world with our diseases and our broken relationships and our pains, to point the rest of the world to this new hope that we have, the only way by which we can draw near to God. Jesus is the only hope, and the reason we're still here is to point others to that reality, to allow others to find that hope that we found in him. I, I was thinking about this idea of, of the new just overwhelming the old, right? And so it, he says it becomes even more evident that the old is old when the new appears. So just kind of following the computer theme, I had a picture here of the new computer, right? Um, this is, yeah, ooh, yeah. <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. The 9 o'clock just stares blankly, and you all talk. It always throws me off. The, uh, the new computer. The, this one, I don't know if you've heard about the new one, but this one uh, can dress you in the morning. It will, it will wash your car, right? The, the old computer, all it could do was type, and, and slowly at that. But the new computer can do all of these amazing things, right? Change your life. And what the author is saying is, is when Jesus comes on the scene, how could you possibly want to go back to the old? How could you possibly want that when you can have the new? And that's the logic that he's unfolding here. He, there's this great application of, of this difference between the two systems and the change system and the throwing away of the old system in Colossians 2, uh, 20 through 23. Uh, I believe it's an application of how we should live this out in our life. Um, because we're tempted, just like they are, to go back to this old way of doing things and this old system is kind of relying on ourselves, trying to keep the rules of life and do things by our own strength, fulfilling the law uh, by who we are rather than trusting on Jesus to fulfill the law for us. Those are two, two different views of law, right? We want to be moral either way, but one side says, I can just gut it out, you know, pull myself up by my bootstraps and, and just be moral. The other side says, I cannot do it. I need Jesus to stand in for me, right? Colossians 2.20 says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, which is a, a whole nother conversation, but he's saying basically the gods of this world, which includes uh, Jewish law-keeping as a means to justify ourselves, that's just one more god of this world. Paul makes it clear in, in uh, uh, Galatians 4 as well. Since you've died to those old ways, those old powers, those elemental spirits, why as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? He says in 21, this is, this is the kind of regulations the law gives us. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to our bodies, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Did you know that was actually in the Bible? That's actually in the Bible. It says, following these rules of the law has no value in helping you restrain the indulgence of your flesh. Now, some of you may want to argue with me about that. I even want to argue with it sometimes, frankly. But, but it's there. That, that's what it says in the scriptures. There's, there's no power in the law in and of itself to help us restrain our flesh. The power is in Jesus. The power comes in, first of all, Jesus completely fulfilling those requirements for us. And then that works itself out in real time, in real life, changing our heart motivations from the inside out. So we begin to restrain our flesh only because we know Jesus has stood in for us. 
We're only able to change. We're only able to be more righteous or to live a more holy life because Jesus has changed us from the inside out. On the other side, we, we say, I can do this. I can handle the law. I'll, I'll take these rules. I'll live by the rules. I'll bring myself to God by being, by being righteous, by fulfilling it myself. And the scripture is clear that that never works. You might make it for a little while and then you'll fail because the law hasn't made anyone perfect. The law's never been able to complete anybody. And what's, what's sad is often what we do, if you think you're being perfect by the law, is really you're just carving off a piece of the law, right? I mean, I've got a few laws that I'm good at, and I'll keep those, and then I can have a judgmental and condemning attitude towards other people that aren't able to keep those, when really all I'm doing is just living out my strengths that God gave me in the first place that I'm living out, and I'm ignoring three-quarters of the law that I'm not fulfilling. And that's the reality of what religious people do. And then we build a denomination, and we gather a club, and we say, hey, we're all the people that are going to be like this, right? We're not going to watch these movies, and we're not going to say these words, and then we're going to bring ourselves to God by virtue of what we've done. And he's saying, the law's never had the power to bring you to God. Religious rules, membership in a denomination or a church has never had the power to bring you to God. Only Jesus can help you to draw near to God. He has got to stand in your place. And when you recognize that, when you know that he has done it for you, then you'll begin to change. Then you'll begin to live in a new way. Not the old system, but the new. The last thing I want us to look at is this, is a, uh, oh, don't look at that yet, is a uh, <laughs> promised system. This new system is a promised system. And we kind of picked this up a little bit in chapter 6 where he was talking about this promise that God made to Abraham, and that promise was this anchor that we have, just like the song on the solid rock, this anchor that enters behind the veil for us. This promise is to Abraham that, that I will give you descendants that will conquer the world, that will bring in peace, that will bless all the nations, right? The same promise is realized then in the birth of Jesus. This promise is made to the serpent, to evil, right in chapter 3, right when evil breaks in to this story that we live in, in Genesis 3. God makes a promise to, to evil, to the serpent. Someday a human's going to come and crush your head. Someday a baby's going to be born that's going to conquer this. We're about to enter into that Christmas season. And, and when we celebrate all these songs about peace and, and the conquering of evil and all these good things that come into Jesus, that doesn't mean that the peace is now. It means that Jesus has just defeated sin and death once and for all on the cross. And, and the now, when evil is still reigning, is God's patience, like it says in the letter written by Peter, that God's patience, not wanting any to miss out, but, but giving people time to repent, giving people time to see Jesus, to meet Jesus. And then someday will come where it's done. And evil is eradicated. And, and he brings in that new heavens and new earth, that future health and wealth that we're, we're waiting for, that we're longing for, that, that day will eventually come. But right now we live in this time where Jesus has conquered sin and death already. The baby came. He was born. The new system came in. The promise was fulfilled. And now we're waiting for it to all be completed, right? We're waiting for more people to see him. We're waiting for more people to find him. Like I said earlier, that, that's why we're still here in the wilderness. When you meet Jesus, you're not magically taken out of the wilderness. That's, that's death. That's what we call death. As Christians, we should be excited about the day when we get to go meet the Lord in death and be in his presence. But as long as we're alive, as long as we've got a little bit of fight left in us, he wants to use us to point others to Jesus and show that hope that he's the only way the, to help people draw near to God. So, so this fulfillment is, is not a computer. It's not a machine. And now, look at the picture. Now it's a cute little baby, right? 
It, it is life itself. It's something organic. The promises that were always made were a person. A person is coming. A child is coming. A baby is going to be born. I, and uh, that's, that's not actually Jesus there. That's just a picture I found on the Internet because I thought it was cute. But, but Jesus is the system, right? It, it's not a better computer. It's not a computer that can dress us and wash our clothes and do our dishes. The new system is Jesus. He, he is the system. He and his person is the one that brings us to God. These promises were made, and now these promises are kept in Jesus. Verse 20 in the following uh, section, pick up this theme that he already touched on in verse 16. So I want to hit 16 again one more time. He's become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Again, it's not by some law-keeping, some external regulation, some rules out here, but it was in his person he's fulfilled this for us. His indestructible life. Jesus has conquered it in who he is. You have to deal with Jesus. You can't evaluate a church based on the system and all the weird people at the church. You've got to look at Jesus. You've got to deal with Jesus. If you're here this morning and you're trying to understand uh, what this is all about, I would say scrap half of what you've seen but cling to the Jesus part. You've got to look at him and his power to conquer death. You've got to deal with his resurrection. Verse 20 in Hebrews 7 says, it was not without an oath. Okay, so this is where we are on this promise system. It's not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You're a priest forever. This oath, promise, swearing idea is in contrast to I do it myself. I do it by my own flesh. This is a, a meta-theme of Scripture, right? We see this in the New Testament. We see this in the Old Testament. That there are those who trust in God being a promise keeper, being a God who makes promises and he keeps oaths for us. And there, there are those that trust in our own strength and our own flesh and, and what we can do by just gutting it out and just being better than other people, right? One produces love. One produces despair or judgmentalism or backbiting. He says in Psalm 27, he introduces the theme. Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Right? Classic verse, and you may have heard that before. There's songs that have been written about that. Some trust in chariots and horses, but we're going to trust in the name of the Lord our God. We're going to trust in Him. We're going to boast in Him and not in our own flesh. John 1.11 says, He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him, but to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. Not natural descent or human will, but God's decision. Again, this, this divide, right? We can trust in our own flesh. We can trust in our, our own strength and the decisions we make and the systems we build. Or we can trust in God. Can he fulfill it on my own? He, he's on his own. He's made the oath. He's made the promise. He said, I'm going I'm to deal with this. Are we going to trust in him or are we going to trust in ourselves to accomplish it in our own flesh? Galatians 4.21 shows this, this distinction even been, being lived out in the life of Abraham, right? We already saw Abraham used in his example in, in Hebrews 6. And in Galatians, Paul uses a very similar argument. He says, well, Abraham tried to do things on his own, and then Abraham trusted God to fulfill his promise. And there were two lines then that were created. There was Ishmael, and there was Isaac. In Galatians 4, he says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, don't you even listen to what the law says? For it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. 
The son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free was born through promise. So he's saying the slave was Abraham and Sarah trying to do it on their own strength. And the free was Abraham and Sarah trusting God to do something supernatural that they could never do on their own. He says in, in verse 24, Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are like the two covenants. One's from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery, and that's Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and she corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she's in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it's written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. This, this theme throughout Scripture, that there are those that can't do it. There are those that are broken hearted. And I know some of you literally live out this verse. You are broken hearted because you can't have children of your own. Or you may be broken hearted because you just can't live the way that you want to live and you, and you want to please God and you want to do right things and you are stuck in this place of not feeling like you can do it. And, and Jesus in Matthew 5, and, and here the author here in Hebrews 7 and Galatians 4, he says, for those of you that realize you cannot do it, God is speaking to you. Jesus says, come to me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. All of you who are heavy laden, all of you who are burdened, come to me and you'll find rest. The call is, is to those of you that are broken, is to those of you that are at the end of your rope. For those of you that think your system's good and you can make it there on your own, the scripture says that that's bad news. It's, you're not going to get there. You're not going to make it. The scripture again and again says, turn back, repent, trust in God, don't trust in yourself. As it says in Proverbs 15, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. And if you think your system is good enough on your own and you can achieve it and you can just get your way out, God says, you're not going to get there. But Jesus can get you there. Jesus can help you draw near to God. He says, now you brothers like Isaac are children of promise. If we've trusted in Christ, then we're supernatural children. We're not children of the flesh. We're not children that have done it on our own. We're children that have come to the end of ourselves and have trusted in the oath, trusted in the promise says it was not without an oath. Let's skip down to verse 22. This makes Jesus a guarantor of a better covenant, he says. So in, in Hebrews 7, 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. And this is going to be unfolded in chapter 8. We're going to talk all about this new covenant and what that means. We'll get there in the new year because we're about to kind of enter into some holiday sermons here for a while uh, over the transition, uh, just the time we're in right now. But we'll pick back up with Hebrews 8 in the new year, understanding this better covenant. It says in verse 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. There may be people in your life you think always live to condemn, right? There are people that you feel like maybe always live to point out what you've done wrong. Always live to point out your failures. There may just be voices in your head that always point out your sin and always point out your mistakes, yet Jesus always lives to intercede for you. If you trust in him by faith, he's the one that will bring you into God's presence. And when you are condemned, he'll say, no, I have given my life for that person. He gives us his perfect righteousness. He keeps the law perfectly for us. He takes our place, and he's taken our sin upon himself on the cross. He, he sets us free. He always lives to make intercession for them. He is able to save us to the uttermost, able to save us 
completely, it says in the other versions. The old system couldn't get us there. It could only point out that we couldn't get there. It could only be a road map, a sign that says you're not there yet. But Jesus is the one that takes us in. Verse 26 says, For indeed it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy and innocent and unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. That's the difference between Jesus and all these other systems is he is the system. He gives himself in our place. For the law appoints men and their weaknesses high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This new system is finally coming in. Saw in the previous chapter, this new system uh, is arrived now later after the law, but it had its roots right before. The promise was made in Genesis 3. The promise was made in Genesis 12. The promises were made again and again, and now it's fulfilled later after the law is fulfilled in Christ. We have got to stand firm on these promises. That is our charge as those that say that this is our only hope is to stand firm because that's the only way we'll live this out in freedom. Otherwise, we may miss the point. Uh, it's interesting. I wanted to talk a little bit about this whole mousetrap thing again before we wrap up. That, that because of that phrase, that phrase that none of you have ever heard before, build a, build a better mousetrap and the world will beat a path to your door. That phrase has apparently become ingrained in our culture, not here but other places, been ingrained in our culture so much that now 4,400 new patents are written every year for better mousetraps. Is that not just bizarre? When, when the old mousetrap apparently works just fine, we're still using them, right? But 4,400 new patents introduced every year. And that tells me that people are missing the point. They're not getting the point of what he was saying. You know, that, that phrase, it was Ralph Waldo Emerson who that quote is, uh, is given, as he's the one that supposedly said that. But, but that was not the point of what he was saying, right? He was just trying to point to the importance of ingenuity and you know, how if you do things right, then that'll be good and you'll have success in life. But, but we miss the point. And we do the same thing with the law, right? We know that God wants us to live out the righteous requirements of the law, but we forget that we can't do that on our own. We can't just grab hold of the law and use it as a means to transform ourselves. And when we misunderstand that, we become bitter people. We don't love, but instead we become slaves, like it talked about in Galatians 4. Paul picks it up in Galatians 5 and says, For freedom... Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So when someone comes along and says, you've got to submit to this culture for God to love you, say, no, it's Christ. Christ is the only way that God's going to love me, through Christ and what he has done. And so when they say, no, you've got to live like me, or you've got to do these things the way I do them, say, no, it's, it's Christ. Christ is the only way that I can be loved. Christ is the only way that I can draw near to God. Paul says in 5.13 of Galatians, For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Right? Some people misunderstood that and said, Oh, well, we're throwing out all the morality of the Old Covenant as well. No, the, the morality is the same. The New Covenant affirms we're still not supposed to murder people. Right? We're, we're still not supposed to steal. It's, it's the same morality, but it's a different external administration of covenant. So we're, we're not to use our freedom to indulge our flesh, he says. It says, don't use it as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. There's, there's two systems. There's the external law-keeping system, 
thinking that we can do it on our own, and it says that leads to biting and consuming and devouring of each other. We tear each other apart. Or these, the, there's the Jesus standing in our place system, the promise system, the Jesus himself bringing us to God system, and only that system will produce love in our life. Only that system will set us free to actually care about someone besides just ourselves. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us. We thank you for the gospel, the good news that we have in Jesus, that you gave yourself for us, that we deserved punishment, that we deserved death, but you stood in our place. You took the punishment that we deserved, and you have given us your righteous, indestructible life. Father, I pray that that would really catch fire in our life, that that would turn us loose to love other people, that we would live differently, that we wouldn't rely on our flesh, but we'd rely on you and the promises that you've made and the promises that you've kept in Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. If some of you would like to talk to me more about what that means, trusting in him and not your own strength, I'd love to talk to you more after this or even throughout the week. You can call the office. Um, God bless you guys. You're dismissed. We love you. Thank you. Don't forget football, one o'clock.